Today on 2C Vans. Even though the opening of some of these holes is about, let's say, 100 feet across, it's hard to get something from the surface down into that hole, you know, without without guiding it down. Well, <laughs> oh, and and let's 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 bring that back. This thing is is not a small instrument. No, right? <laughs> it, it's like how big, Jim? It's it's um <laughs> triangular shaped, and it's about roughly about five feet on each side and maybe about five feet tall. So it has, it's, it's, it's not a three-legged and has a three-legged monster, really. <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty massive. It has, weighs about over 600 pounds. Hello, and welcome to Two Sea Fans at Moat Marine Laboratory, your podcast for marine science, conservation, and educa- education here at Moat. Education. Edumacation. Edumacation. Here at Moat. At Moat Marine in, Laboratory and Aquarium. In Sarasota, Florida. Which is within the United States. Thanks for helping me get through that, Joe. You're welcome, Haley. Good job. Good job. I'm Joe Nicholson. And I'm Haley Rutger. And we have two of our favorite guests here. Both of them are. Well, returned. one of them at least. What? We'll never tell. I won't tell which one, though. Oh, boy. By the end, I'm going to make you tell. Okay. Okay. But uh, they're both my favorite, and I can't keep them apart because they work so well together. Tell us your names and titles, please. Oh, okay. I didn't know if Emily was going to tell me my name and title. <laughs> Sometimes she does that for you, doesn't she? I'm Jim Coulter. I'm a senior scientist at Moat Marine Laboratory in charge of the Benthic Ecology Program. Did you just read that? No. Oh, okay. It's <laughs> right in my head. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> just and I'm, I'm Dr. Emily Hall, and I'm the manager of the Ocean Doctor. Acidification Program as well as the Chemical and Physical Ecology Program. And we like to call this the Emily and Jim show or the Jim and Emily show because... Depending on who you're talking to, I guess. Because these two have the most amazing project that they work on together. Um, holes. Diving deep into the blue holes of the Gulf of Mexico. They like holes. Deep, deep <laughs> geological structures called blue holes. Yes. I'm not going to let you make this strange. I'm not. Okay. They're okay. holes in the sea. They are deep geological structures and we're going to have Jim give us a reminder of what they are he's come on our podcast before to tell us all about these features of the gulf and if you weren't listening we're going to ask Jim to give us a quick recap (laughs) well quite simply blue holes is a common term for a geologic feature as Haley pointed out that the they're holes in the rock, as Joe so succinctly <laughs> stated. Well, for, and, for the normal person, they, that is a yeah, they're holes geologic in the rock. thing. Mostly they form in limestone, which is a kind of a, a more soft rock, and it's because it's porous. based on limestone. It can be porous, and there's cracks in limestone. Mostly they form when the holes are exposed to the air and, and water flows through them. Yeah. The water can be slightly acidic, and it dissolves the limestone. And as the flows it carries away the dissolved rock, and forms tunnels, cracks, crevices, or voids. Mm. Now, when the roof collapses on a void in the rock, you end up with a sinkhole. And that's um, a pretty simple explanation, but that's basically what happens. And so but these ones that are out in the Gulf here? Most of those form during a period of lower sea level, going back perhaps last as much age. as 14,000 years, uh, or small ice age, yeah. And sea level was much lower, and the Gulf Coast was as much as 100 miles further offshore from where it is currently. Mm. And so they formed, the sinkholes formed during when water was flowing across the shelf, fresh water. And then sea level rose, they became submerged. So we are studying submerged 
karst features, which are commonly known as blue holes. Jim, I know Jim's been studying these and diving in them as like a deep technical diver for a long time and has been one of the key, probably the key person exploring them with the technical dive community. And Emily, um, how are you working with Jim and with others as sort of the PI on this new blue hole? Yeah. Initiative. Well, we received a grant from NOAA, the Ocean Exploration Program, to study a couple of these holes that Jim and his buddies have been exploring for a number of years um, to to really characterize them uh, chemically, physically, and biologically, uh, and to try to answer a number of kind of overlying questions that we have, including one that you kind of just brought up. Are they connected to our aquifers at all? Is there a freshwater influence out to the Gulf, or is there you know, is this indication of an area where we could see more saltwater intrusion going the other way into into our mainland. Um, and so a lot of these holes that are offshore are actually pretty difficult to get to. Um, you definitely need to take a boat to get out to them. Uh, the one hole that we've been studying in detail, Amberjack Hole, is about 33 miles offshore. So it's, it's a long boat ride to get out there, um, which, which makes it less accessible to uh, some of the researchers on land that are interested in these. Um, so we got this grant that, so we could do a number of trips out to two different holes to try to see, like I said, characterize them to see if they are connected to the mainland, also to see if there's any differences between some of these holes that we've seen. Um, uh, and we are working with a number of colleagues from places like Georgia Institute of Technology, Harbor Branch, FAU, um, in USGS to, to do these characterizations using some cool technology um, to get down into these holes. Yeah, so one of those things is uh, I'm going to have you describe the big giant piece of technology that you guys helped uh, place down there with your colleagues. What's it called, and is this the first time using it? <laughs> uh, it is called a benthic lander. So for those that haven't been able to go online and see pictures of it yet, it kind of looks like something that might land on the moon. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, it's, it's this big instrument that allows us to put other smaller instruments on to take real-time data, to let it stay out there at depths for a number of hours or a number of days, something that we as divers can't do. We're does, very it, does it have to be like crazy sturdy to be at that depth or is it, you know, I don't know, like, how much pressure are you getting down there? Uh, yeah, it has to be pressure tested. It has to be able to withstand certain pressures. It has to be able to be able to withstand different chemical changes. We go through a sulfide layer, for example, mm -hmm. um, and, and cold like, temperature decreases a lot, oxygen decreases. So it has to be able to withstand those things. Um, and it has to be able to stay sturdy on the bottom. The place we're trying to place it is on top of a debris pile, which as Jim knows, it, it can, we've, we've seen evidence that if it's not anchored properly, it can slide down the side oh, of the, no. the debris pile. <laughs> yeah, no. But we, yeah. we've overcome that. Um, yeah. But um, it's, it's a really neat instrument. We've, we've tried a number of different ways to get it down there. And it actually, even though the opening of some of these holes is about, let's say, 100 feet across, it's hard to get something from the surface down into that hole, for, you know, without, without guiding it down. Well, and, <laughs> oh, my and, goodness. And, Let's 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 bring that back. This thing is is not a small instrument. No, right? no. It, it's like how big, Jim? It's it's um, <laughs> triangular shaped, and it's about roughly about five feet on each side, and maybe about five feet tall. So it's, has, it's it's so three legged and has a three legged monster really. <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty massive. It has, weighs about over six hundred pounds. Oh. So you got to get this yeah. thing on a boat. 
Then you got to take it 33 miles offshore. Then you got to drop it down 100 and what 10 feet to the sea floor, mm-hmm. and then another what 200 and about another 200 feet feet down yep. to the debris pile. to the debris pile. So we're talking. So we're talking about this five foot by five foot, 600 pound. <laughs> Correct. Now imagine Device. that. Imagine that when the boat is rocking yeah. in really rough seas. Yes. Yeah, yeah. After being and out there on a thirty-mile journey out to the spot. Yes. And it gets down there, and it still has to work, and it still has to take samples. Uh, it has to have like something over the sediment to see if like nutrients are coming out. Mm-hmm. It has to do all this work for you, so you can't break it. So you must have a <laughs> lot of volunteers to help with this project. Yeah, yeah we do. And the um, one of the first things we learned back in May was that. The sediment is very soft. You know, consider that when you're on the bottom, you can easily push your arm, your full arm length into the bottom. Really? And I took a piece of PVC once and stuck it in 10 feet easily Ooh. into the bottom. So we were a little afraid that the legs might sink in and it would be too deep yeah. on the lander. So the first trial, we put wooden boards between the like legs. Like skis almost. Well, and that's what happened. And that was <laughs> part of the problem. Because when uh, the debris, top of the debris pile is relatively small, but it's there. So it's like a slope on all the other sides. So it hit slightly off center and it started to ski down the slope. Oh, Ooh, nice. No. And um, the divers really can't stop it. So they just had to check to see if it was oriented correctly. And it, and it did mm. work. And it even, stopped even eventually. It down now. Yeah, the second time we took the skis off. Okay. And it basically stuck its landing when, when it nice. hit the bottom. Slightly off center, but it was pretty close to the t- top of the debris pile. Nice. And, and, and it was situated pretty perfectly. The legs only sunk in about six or seven inches into the bottom. Yeah. So um, this is one big chunk of how you collect data in this blue hole, and the others include, like, you're taking samples yourselves as technical divers, you're taking photos, I assume. You're, so tell us about how, what kinds of data you get from all these different things you do. Um, we're getting a lot of different data. Uh, chemically, we're looking at all the nutrients. We are looking at chlorophyll as well. Um, this last time, we even took samples to see if there was any uh, Karenia brevis or red tide down there in the hole. Um, we are looking at all the physical parameters, so uh, salinity, temperature, et cetera, carbonate parameters, so the whole carbonate chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, we're interested to see what's going on with that. Um, our, our listeners are going to want to know if there was any red tide in that hole. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can actually tell you there was no Karenia brevis, but there was another species of Karenia bre- present. And mm. we're still um, investigating to understand if that's a toxic species or yeah. if, it's some- and if it's something that's out there all the time. So yeah, we're that, still that looking Ka- into that. That Karenia brevis is the Florida red tide organism. So that's the, that's the Karenia species you didn't find. But just so everyone knows, that's the, that's the big one in the Gulf of Mexico that causes ocean-dwelling Florida red tides. And then there are other Karenia species that are related to it that we might just not know as well or correct yeah correct and there's definitely other <laughs> phytoplankton species down there um, we can see that with the elevated chlorophyll that yeah. we're finding yeah. um, we're also looking at different metals down in the sediments different biogeochemical uh, we're, we're, we're trying to quantify different biogeochemical patterns that are happening in the sediment and coming up out through the hole. Our colleagues from Georgia Tech are also looking at the microbial community mm-hmm. and, and looking at molecular uh, differences, and we've so far found some pretty interesting things. We are also looking at um, radon and radium to see if there's any connection or any link to fresh possible freshwater influences. And we're looking at the biological community as well. We're doing surveys around the rim and down into the hole all the way to the bottom. 
You got everything, everything. in this project. Almost, yes. <laughs> almost, almost you know, everything. Well, that's what differentiates this project from earlier yeah. looks, is that the intensity at, that we're going to be doing at two sites. Previously, our research and exploration was focused on finding sites and doing some basic characterizations on some chemistry and um, the extent and water quality type things. Yeah. Uh, so this one's much more intense look to, to address some kind of important issues in biology today. And one of them does have to do with groundwater flux. Originally, many years ago when I got into this, I had the thought as a biologist, wouldn't it be great to find an offshore spring? Because people kept saying there's offshore springs, offshore springs that flowed fresh water because it's way out in the Gulf. Yeah. Um, yeah. This could be a very, very unique community. And that was kind of the driver for me to look at these. Okay, tap it. Turns out we water. never found any. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it may have flowed years ago, and there's supposed to be historic information that alludes to that. Mm-hmm. And in a conversation I had have had with Sylvia Earle, who grew up in uh, Dunedin on West Florida coast, she claimed that out of sight of land when she was a child, they had freshwater boils on the surface. Of the really? <laughs> and, and that's certainly possible, but now the freshwater hydrology has been pumped down so much within our state there's probably not the what they refer to as the hydrologic head enough pressure to push water that far offshore but we have found the preliminary results show they have found there is groundwater flux and that's based on some of the uh in this hole you just radon and radium and the isotope work so in the hole you just visited aj hole is what it's called yeah and we have a little bit of information from another hole as well that was preliminary so there's at least something to to suggest there may be connectivity so that's well yeah i'm certain of that because we also have something as simple as temperature logs we put long-term temperature recorders at some of these sites and it showed that there's a tidal action, a pumping of water in and out of the holes. So it's got to go somewhere. So it's mm. going into the ground. So what I'm hearing is we're, we're kind of onto the fact that there's something. We need to keep looking at that because it's still, it still, it makes that question of whether the salt water could, you know, get to our aquifer or anything. It makes it more intriguing because there could be something going on, right? Well, yeah. And it just, uh, I think it exemplifies and u.s geological surveys looking at some groundwater flux closer to shore but mm-hmm. they haven't been this far offshore but i you know, there are connections and i think it's important that people realize that it's not static that groundwater and surface seawater do mix yeah. we just don't know the magnitude of that is there anything that the public can take away from what you've been seeing with carbonate chemistry in these holes up through this last expedition? Sure. Uh, I guess one of the big important things that we're seeing, if you just use pH, for example, as an indicator and in change in carbonate chemistry, yeah. um, pH above these holes and around the Gulf, kind of average pH is around an 8.0, 8.1. Uh, as we go into the hole, we see pretty quickly it drops all the way down to about a 7.4. More acidified. Um, it's more yep. acidified as we go in, and, and we see the change in things like PCO2, for example, that, that people will hear about our, PCO, or our CO2 in our atmosphere getting higher and higher and higher, and we see that same elevation in these holes going from a 400 microatmospheres up to like a 1500 microatmosphere at the bottom of the hole, which just basically is telling you there's a lot of a big change in the carbonate chemistry as you go down into those, which makes sense as these are carbonate uh, features, these these karst features. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to put that into perspective, you know, people think, oh, eight something to seven something, that's not a big change. <laughs> Number wise, right. that seems small, <laughs> but the, an equivalent change, say, in your blood pH would kill you. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and then you figure out oh, marine animals, if they have to experience that, they either adapt or die. So, so right. there could be unique life forms down there, which is part of what interested, I guess, your Georgia Tech colleagues huh. in, in that environment. Yeah, they'll be the only ones still alive on this planet eventually. 
<laughs> with those <laughs> microbes. <laughs> well, <laughs> the, well, what I've been hearing, and I might be saying this wrong, but the blue holes show both a more acidified environment, which is the way some, some or many of our coastal environments are going and our ocean environments are going, and also lower oxygen environment, which um, I understand from our colleagues is also another thing that's growing uh, in our ocean ecosystem. So, so could the, be right. So, what lives in a blue hole is interesting. Yes, <laughs> let's just say maybe the dominant life species on this planet. Let's not make uh, big fat <laughs> assumptions like that. <laughs> hey, I'm just trying to write a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, let's hope not because as you go deeper into the holes, yeah. there's almost nothing alive. Yeah, right. that's right. That's as, you, right. as you get down there at the bottom, it's primarily the microbes that are alive down there. Mm-hmm. Well, no don't s- don't take a Joe science fiction. No stealing. Yeah, no stealing my ideas anyway. That, that too. Don't steal his sci-fi ideas. But <laughs> but uh, speaking of uh, life in blue holes, so Jim, you mentioned Sylvia Earle, and she's with this organization now, Mission Blue, and they just called the Gulf of Mexico coast, a certain area of it, a what they call a hope spot, um, just a place with important ecological or economic features that, you know, needs to be continued to be protected and that kind of thing. And part of the reason they called this area a hope spot is because we have these blue holes here and they have a lot of life around them. So can you give us an update on the different organisms you've seen around them? Well, they're they're kind of like an oasis, and not to say that there's a desert around them, but there's perhaps less productive sand or sandy shell bottom areas around them. So they're the very unique features. They're kind of a reef in reverse, where you know normal reef would come up off the bottom, these go down into the bottom. Yeah. But they're also very confined by those constraints, where you get soft sediment not too far from the rim. You have this narrow lip of limestone rock, which things like to settle on and attach to and grow. And then for maybe you know 20 or 30 feet into the hole, it's very productive. And then the productivity declines as you get colder and uh, pH drops and your dissolved oxygen goes away and you have hydrogen sulfide in the hole. So this kind of like this tenuous little environment that things are on, they're very abundant. You can get, you get corals, usually smaller ones. Um, you get uh, algae, you have a lot of different species of algae grow. Some of them very, appear to be very seasonal. Sargasm can be very abundant, particularly around the amberjack hole. Yeah, we saw but, that in the spring. Yeah. We saw a ton Primarily of sargasm. Primarily spring, yeah. And yeah. Sargasm, most people associate with floating mats. But yeah. it, it starts on the bottom and then just gets large, it breaks off and floats. I always wondered how, yeah. it, uh, how it got where it got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So these are very abundant reefs. And if you look, the closer you look, the more smaller stuff, you, know, you get orders of magnitude more things as you go smaller. Okay. Lots of sponges, lots of tiny little microcrustaceans and uh, clams and snails and other things all in there. Um, we do see the invasive lionfish, but not as many as we saw a couple years ago. So they mm. might be on the decline or stable. Perhaps. Although I think we saw more in the fall than we did in the spring. But that could be because they be were seasonal. sheltered by the sargassum and we just couldn't see them. Oh, <laughs> we, yeah. we would all like to believe they're declining. So yeah. if we could just keep that hope <laughs> up. <laughs> well, they're popular fishing sites too. And for also yeah. for spearfishing. And spearfishermen can take as many as they want. So that yeah. they could be applying pressure to them as well. We, but we do so. see endangered species. We see... Um, um, sea turtles yeah. at these sites fairly often if we don't see them underwater we often almost always see them on the surface near the sites so they like to go there nice. um, we see other species we see a lot of sharks um, not abundance wise but a number of different species nurse sharks and pelagics and I, the only place I've ever seen a live whale shark in the field was at one of these sites cool very cool and uh, I mean the whole food web is uh, a big big pieces of the food web are happening around blue holes you have 
My understanding is that there's some nutrients coming out of these holes that might support the lower levels of the food web. Is that, am I going in the right direction here? Yes, we do <laughs> see elevated nutrients and, and sometimes those elevated nutrients, we have caught it a, a far above the hole. So coming out of the hole for sure, um, <clears throat> which is really incredible. And then we see the elevated chlorophyll, so elevated phytoplankton communities and, 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 on, and on up the food web and through the food web. So these are pretty interesting um, holes and we like to call them actually ecological hotspots right. out in the Gulf. And there's a number of them. So it's, it's pretty interesting to see and to see the differences between the different holes. Why, why should we care about these holes? Well, you, we hear that question a lot in biology, particularly <laughs> on small things that people can't eat. Well, you know, they, what, what good are they? But uh, biological diversity is tremendously important to the planet, and we're unfortunately seeing a reduction worldwide in the number of species. And we have to remember we're part of the ecosystem. We can't get away from that. We are dependent on everything else in the world that lives and survives and makes the planet habitable. Um, just by because that's what we evolved in. We evolved in the what current day life is on Earth. So they are important to try to. We need to try to maintain biological diversity and and, and stay away from things that are going to impact the smaller life because sooner or later that goes up the food chain and affects the uh, higher level animals. Yeah. So you know, we may not at this point be able to put an economic value on them, but if you want to go that direction, they're very important for uh, for angling. Anglers go out. Every day you'll see people fishing these sites, so there's tremendous interest. And from that standpoint, you don't want to fish them out or just totally destroy them. Then they'll have fewer places to, uh, to look at in terms of fishing. So Yeah, saltwater sport fishing is humongous in Florida. Um, so <laughs> Right, and these sites may be indicative of, like you were mentioning earlier, what our coastal areas are going to look like. And so it's important to study them, especially chemically. Um, if we're seeing elevated nutrients from, let's say, eutrophication or nutrient runoff and then uh, reduced oxygen and then elevated PCO2 or reduced pH. So what's, what's going on in these holes? What can it tell us about what might happen with the rest of the Gulf of Mexico? What's the, the biggest takeaway, I guess, or, or biggest thing you learned from this past study that you, know, you can tell us about? That's a tough one, Jim. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's still a work in process. I don't know if we have the ultimate you know, big picture what's going on. I think one thing is there's a lot more of them than I th originally thought there would be. They're hard to find, and some of them are very small. They're just like um, portals, portals into caves, manhole-sized structures. <laughs> yep. you know, yep. Oh, my gosh. you got to be brave to swim into a manhole 100 feet under the water. <laughs> or dumb. Oh. <laughs> just Cautious. Kidding, Put it that way. Cautious. Cautious, yes. Cautious and Cautiously dumb. Yes. Cautious and prepared. <laughs> prepared. And, and highly trained. Highly trained, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, our divers are all very highly trained. So yeah. We have a lot of volunteer driver, divers who helped over the years. Yeah, absolutely. Which would really have made this possible. Um, yeah, yeah. I would assume without those guys helping like place the, uh, what was it, lander, um, yeah. a lot of this would have been almost impossible to do. It would have been very much more difficult because you have to be able to see where things happen. You know. So a big shout out to the volunteer divers. Huge shout oh, yeah. out. They also yeah. collect samples at the bottom that we couldn't get without them. So Yeah, and they do this all at their own expense. It's not mm -hmm. cheap to do technical diving. Um, wow. It's not, not cheap, I think. But Way to go, guys. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Thank you to our volunteer divers. That's and. Right. Um, before we wrap up today, is there anything else you two wanted to add? 
Jim's the best. <laughs> That's <laughs> no, what but, Emily has to add. No, but seriously, if, if Jim and, and his dive buddies didn't start exploring these holes a long time ago yeah. um, out of their own interests and their own their own time doing it, I would have never gotten involved with this or even learned about these things. And these are kind of natural laboratories for us to, to try to understand changes in our environment, um, and especially in light of a change in climate. So I'm super excited to have been brought on as a part of this to add the chemical experience with these guys and to get more into the diving and to see these underworld, um, like we said, oases or ecological hotspots. It's it's a whole nother world down there, and it's super cool to see. So thank you, Jim. (laughs) Well, I thank you for joining the team because it's it's been very difficult to obtain funding for this type of research because you can't say in advance what you're going to find. It might be nothing. And so it is an exploration research. Unfortunately, NOAA recognizes that. And they have this ocean exploration program, which often does step out on a limb at times to see what, investigate things that need exploring. And, you know, I can't say about my, my dive buddies who over the years, like say, basically co-funded this by boat time and dive time and providing station locations. Uh, these things are hard to find and you have to mm-hmm. persuade fishermen to give up their secret hotspots yep. that only them and a hundred other people know about. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But none of them talk about it. So that's been... Um, the, one of the best things that's happened because they go way back. They've some of these guys have discovered a lot of these sites and commercial fishermen, that type of thing. I can't believe it's hard to find somebody uh-huh. that won't give you a bag full of money just to go out <laughs> and explore around <laughs> in the Gulf. No, they think, oh, diving's involved. You just want to go out and have dive and have fun, but uh, right. it's more to it than that. The sciences actually work, yes. and then you, then you have to come back and stress out about the numbers and getting your data correct, mm-hmm. and <laughs> the QA and laboratory analysis and all of that is something which. Right, because sometimes yeah. you get one shot to take a sample, especially at those depths, and mm-hmm. you know, right. the next time you can go out. Because yeah, you I can't would, stay down there long. No, <laughs> that brings up a point. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about the sawfish that was discovered, but the um, unfortunately, I, wasn't, I didn't discover it personally. I was down there on the dive, but I had my head stuck in the mud, taking sediment cores, and, which in, underwater is not an easy task because as soon as you start to disturb the sediment, it gets stirred up, and then it's dark, it's cold, and you're totally blind because you can't see anything. Mm-hmm. And so if you leave go of anything, it's as good as lost because either floats or sinks. And then you have to take a core, keep it upright, put the caps on, which is kind of hard. And all the while, you have to think every minute of time, say at, at 100 meters or three, lower 300 feet, if I spend a minute more on the bottom, I have seven more minutes of decompression to undergo. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're keeping in your thoughts, okay, your time's cranking up and kind of keep an eye on the time and your, the gas that you have and how long it's going to take you to get back to the surface. So, um, That's nuts. And, and do stuff <laughs> while totally blind. But, <laughs> but, but it's just right. a day's work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's but I've done a lot of those over the years, mostly in shallower water, so I kind of know how to do that. Yeah. But, then, but then the two... Uh, Volunteer tech divers were searching for an instrument I had placed in May when I was down there the whole time, and that's when they found uh, the sawfish. And, um, An endangered species, correct. right? Yeah. Right. So they didn't disturb it. Fortunately, they had a camera with them and got some underwater video. And then um, were crazy excited when they came up to the surface to report they found two sawfish. Wow. And they were in such a position, they weren't sure if they were alive or dead. But no, yeah. they were dead because they were under that sulfide layer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was then reported to the authorities, um, some people at NOAA, as well as the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Yeah. And they hold the permits to do any recovery of these species. Right. 
So two days later, two days later, we were out there, and they sent a, a boat out to meet us, and they recovered the sawfish. And I'm glad they were on a separate boat because it stunk really bad. <laughs> Sm smelly. It's not alive anymore, and it was in all that sulfur. Um, <coughs> had it de de decomposed at all? Or well, it was obviously decomposing, um, but because it stunk so bad, but, but <laughs> it, was, it was intact. It wasn't falling apart. Well, because there's a, a low oxygen, it's a low oxygen environment, correct? Yes. Correct. But so there, it wouldn't decompose as fast. there's anaerobic bacteria. I, I'm conflicted in that. I've heard different reports. Um, one investigator who, my uh, um, colleague at University of South Florida has studied some sinkholes close to land. And, and his contention was stuff decomposes pretty rapidly under anaerobic conditions. Really? So I had always heard kind of the opposite, but I don't mm -hmm. know enough about it. Yeah, that's a good good question. Well, we know that. Um, so we, we the sawfish was one of the sawfish at least so far has been recovered by NOAA permitted um, divers, and it went to a colleague at FWC who was looking at just doing a necropsy and looking at what went on with it. And you know, afterward, we talked to our colleagues at NOAA and just about how important it was that you know this happened the right way because people, if you see a sawfish um, alive or dead, you might not know what the heck to do. And actually, NOAA has a number where you can report them. So I want to make sure everybody has that. It is one eight four four for sawfish. <laughs> so <laughs> one eight four four for sawfish. And they say that if you, this is a different situation, but if you catch one, uh, keep it in the water, don't bring it aboard, um, don't use any gaffs or ropes, and cut the line as close to the hook as, as is safely possible, and then report that sawfish. Because they are um, protected by federal and state law, so you want to do the right thing. And our scientists here <laughs> called NOAA pretty quick right after that, and so I'm glad that they were able to report and have it recovered, and we'll see what they learn. Um, that ends my uh, my little PSA, but um, it's very important and really cool find. And uh, I've seen this the video. This message brought to you by brought to, brought to you by me, <laughs> conscientious communicator over here. So thank you guys so much for giving us this like awesome tour of the latest blue hole research and and coming to do a, the emily and jim show or uh, the, the jim and now and now i like them both the same <gasps> oh, i i forgot i was gonna like try to get that out of you no no now they're the same that's what i wanted to have happen so Yay. mission accomplished we've reached <laughs> equilibrium we've reached equilibrium <laughs> all right well, we'll see you all in, uh, very soon for another episode of 2C Fans at Moe.